0: If you have a, a Bible with you or there's one under the seat in front of you, you're welcome to turn. I'm going to be looking at story from Gospel of John, chapter 11. We'll be going through that in just a few moments together. In 1977, at the age of 19, due to electrocution by high voltage, after a few minutes of getting me down from the platform, I was on an additional several minutes of CPI with no response. I was dead for a little more than 10 minutes. I was left for dead, so to speak, and when I opened my eyes, the men around me were staring at me, and one of them said, look, he's alive. I remember seeing someone walk away as I lay there, and I was told minutes later, Then a man came over, put his hands on my head and chest, and said, Live and breathe in Jesus' name. A few years ago in Africa, a story is told about a woman's husband who had died, been embalmed. She took his body to a crusade. They wouldn't let her in the main door, but let her in a back room under the platform. People started praying for him, and he came back to life. They interviewed many people, including the mortician. He leaked embalming fluid for several weeks. You can find the story online. Dr. Chansey Crandall, a few months ago I had shared a story of a man who came in. Uh, Dr. Chan- uh, Dr. Crandall is a renowned cardiologist. And one thing unique about him is he prays and for all of his patients. He also does all of the things any cardiologist would do for his patients as well. And uh, if you remember, the little uh, video it was a uh, man came in, dropped in the waiting room, massive heart attack. He tried for an hour to, to get him back with, with no luck. And as Dr. Crandall was walking out the door, uh, the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, I want you to go back and pray for that man. And he talks about going back that day. He said, I had very little faith. In fact, he said, "I had my first thought was I have too many things to do to go back and pray." Went back, prayed for that man, told the nurse to come over. He said, "I want you to shock this man once more," and uh, he did, and the man was immediately resuscitated with no damage to any organs or his heart after 60 minutes with no heartbeat. Well, these are just a few stories. I don't know if you know anybody who's died and been raised back from the dead. Probably most of us don't. But stories abound of people. Maybe not all of them are true. But probably a lot of them are. And that is something that is pretty amazing on the list of miracles. It's got to be right at the top. There were, I think there's nine people in the Bible, other than Jesus, that were raised from the dead, there were uh, three in the Old Testament. I'll just r- scroll through them. Some of them, you some of you might know. Some of you may not have read about them. There was the son of Zarephath, uh, the Zarephath widow. There was the son of the Shunammite woman, and then there was the man who just touched the bones of Eli, of uh, Elisha, and. He came back to life. Those are three from the Old Testament. Then the New Testament, we have the, the son of the widow of Nain. We have the daughter of Jairus. We have Dorcas, who was a, a godly disciple whom Peter raised. We have Eutychus, who was the guy that fell out of the second or third story window when Paul was preaching. Uh, you know, Even people fell asleep in those days. And the guy... I'm, not, I'm going to give you no guarantees, though, if you die listening to my preaching, that I'm going to be able to raise you from the dead. So just keep that in mind before you drift off. Uh, Eutychus, and then, of course, there was Lazarus. Jesus was the most profound. Because Jesus was beaten to within an inch of his life, crucified on a cross. They put a spear in right up through his chest cavity, into his lungs and heart, and put him in a tomb three days, and he rose again. So that's got to be, obviously, the most dramatic story of all. But this morning we are going to look at what I think is the second most unique story in the Bible, and that is the story of Lazarus. It's, It's very unique for a number of reasons, and I'll just share a few of them. Number one, Lazarus was dead for four days. He was dead for four days. Now, there are a lot of people that were raised from the dead, like the guy that fell out of the window, but, you know, it, was, it had only been just a few moments, and so, you know, you might argue saying, well, he really didn't die, or that kind of thing. Lazarus was the only one that made it to the cemetery, other than Jesus, when he was raised from the dead. Also, what's unique here is the detail. The detail is amazing. There's no other account in the Bible that has anywhere near the detail that this story of Lazarus does in the Gospel of John. The other thing that's interesting and, and strange and creates questions in people's minds and has, has been the ammunition for a number of critics is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not say anything about this story. John is the only one. And so critics jump on this and they say, well, if this really happened, it's certainly, the other authors would have certainly included it. And those critics go the normal route, which is to say, if I can't figure something out, it must not have happened. There are a number of possibilities. You know, each writer has a different purpose. Each writer included different stories. In in John 21, 25, John says that, If we were to include all the things that Jesus has done, John says, I don't suppose that all the books in the world could contain them. So imagine, you know, scrolls could only be so big. That's why a lot of these accounts are are so short, and there's often not a lot of detail. You could only write so much, and so authors had to pick and choose what they wrote about. Another fact is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote, an estimated 20 to 30 years after Jesus' death, it's very possible Lazarus was still alive. John wrote his Gospel later. And so perhaps John picks up the story because Lazarus had now died. And often people are written about after they die. Often people are not written about when they're still alive. And lastly, you know, God's the author of the Bible. And He can include whatever stories He wants, whenever and wherever He wants to. And so we have this story in the Gospel of John. And the last thing that makes it very unique is that this is really the, the last miracle that Jesus would do. Other than healing the guy's ear in the garden, this was the last miracle Jesus would do on earth. So I'd like to walk through the story with us together here, and, and then we'll make, uh, draw some applications on it. I'll try and act sort of like a little tour guide here as we go through it and make a few comments on the way. And so, to start the story, we need to, we need to pick up kind of where we're at. You know, you would never walk into a movie, 50 minutes into the movie, and, and expect to understand what's going on. And so, this is a narrative. John runs a narrative here, and so there's, there are things happening. And so in order to set the stage... We, we need to jump back from John 11, which is where the story is that we're going to look at. And we need to jump back to chapter 10. And listen to the stage here, as I said it, John 10, and I'm going to begin in verse 22. It says, Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was in the temple area, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, no one can set, snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, the Jews replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jumping over to verse 39. And again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the earlier days, and here he stayed. So, you know, here's the stage. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and things have gotten really tense. Uh they're about, they're planning to take his life, and so he escapes and he flees and he goes to this place called Priya, which is where John the Baptist had worked, and it was probably at least a minimum of 20 miles away from Jerusalem. And so Jesus and his disciples are hanging out here because it's not safe to go back. We go then to John chapter 11, and we have the story. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus was now, uh, now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the disciples sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, if you're telling a story, I mean, here's the punchline. You know, the, normally you, you put this at the end of the story, right? You, you go into town and you build the suspense. So evidently John's purpose in this story is not, is not just to tell a story and it's not to put, keep us in suspense because he tells us right up front in the story that this sickness is not going to end in death. Then it says this in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved... Martha and her sister and Lazarus yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick he stayed where he was two more days so the classic meaning of this is that you know Jesus Jesus hears this word and he says this is not going to end in death and so he stays where he is two more days and he has a purpose, obviously, in staying away two more days. What's also interesting is that this, you know, that's, there's a little statement in there which John includes, which is very important to hear. And that's verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. John wants to make sure that we understand that him delaying his response to Mary and Martha's request had nothing to do with the fact that he didn't love them. John makes that very clear a number of times in this text. So just keep that. We're going to come back to that. Well, the disciples you know, respond to this and you know, they're aghast that, that Jesus is going to do this. And so they, they respond to him and they... He, says to the disciples, uh, he said to the disciples after two days, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you and yet you're going to go back there? And then Jesus said, are there not twelve hours of daylight? And a man who walks by day will not stumble for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles for he has no light. And so Jesus here is saying in the Jewish calendar the days were divided into two hour sections. It's twelve hours when you worked? Twelve hours when you rested. Doesn't that sound nice? So you get up at six, and you work till six, and then you're done. And then you rest. And evening was a time for relating with people, and the Jews had that kind of rhythm in their lives. And so Jesus is saying, you know, so those two periods were light and dark, day and night. Jesus says to disciples, I need to work when it's day. It's day right now. You don't stumble by doing what you're supposed to do in the day. Jesus said, it's by night that you stumble. And so Jesus is basically saying, this is my time. God has called me to do something. I need to be doing what he's called me to do. It's not about job security. It's about being faithful to what God had had called him to do. And then he tells him Lazarus is asleep. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him. And the disciples said, well, if he's asleep, then he'll get better. In other words, we don't need to go if he's just sleeping. But Jesus, it says in verse 13, was speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Guys, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. And then he adds this little comment, And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then Thomas called Didymus, said to to, uh, the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So that just gives you a little bit of the idea of what the disciples expected was going to take place. They expected to go back and they'd all be, Jesus would be stoned and, and they would be executed. And this was a pretty, pretty risky trip back to Bethany, at least for the disciples. Well, by this time, Jesus had been, you know, by the time Jesus was told about Lazarus, Lazarus had already died. He takes two more days, and it takes a day or so to travel. And he finally gets there. It's now been four days. Four days. And we see here Mary and Martha. They're in true form. Martha's the one that runs out to meet him and says, Lord, if you'd only been here, this, I know you could have healed him. That's what she's saying. She knew Jesus had power, but she didn't realize how much power he really had. And so we come to verses 25 to 27, probably the most important verses in the whole text. Even though it's an astounding story, this is what's the most important section. Verse 25, Then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? We see also her response. Yes, Lord. She told him, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Well, it all sounds like a contradiction. Jesus says, anyone, even though he dies, yet he will live. And then he says, he who believes in me will never die. So which is it? Well, what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's talking about our physical death and he's talking about spiritual death. And so what he's saying is, you know, even though you physically die, which we all will, yet shall, we, yet shall you live. And in fact, for those who believe on a soul level and their spirit, they will never die. Did you know that if, through faith in Christ, you you sit here today and you know you will never die. Now your body will die, but the, the you, who you are, you know that part that's aware of who you are, that part of you will never die. That is an amazing truth to ponder. A couple of weeks ago we celebrated the life of Bruce Baker. His body wore out, it died, but the reason we celebrate it is because he lives. And so that is the, what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about the fact that physically we'll die, but spiritually we really never die is what he's saying for those who believe. Well, Next we see Mary comes and she, she's been hanging out just alone crying in a room, but when she hears Jesus is looking, she gets up, makes her way down. And here's where the details of the story become very enlightening. We see the mention here of two very powerful emotions of Jesus. Two very powerful emotions. Look at verse 33, chapter 11 of John. It says, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved. He was deeply moved in His spirit and trouble. Where have you laid Him, He asked. Come and see Lord they replied and Jesus said hey cheer up guys watch what I'm going to do why is everybody crying no the text says that Jesus wept and the word wept there means he sobbed means he was like you know like when you're just convulsing you're sobbing that's what the word means And what's so interesting here to me, what's what's so interesting is that Jesus is two minutes out from a miracle. He knows this is going to happen. We, We find that early on in the story. Jesus is only two minutes out from a miracle and he's weeping over the situation. And the Jews got it right. They said, see how he loved them. See how he loved them. And then, of course, there are those that quickly move to the response that we find so common in our day. But some of them said, Could He not, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man from dying? I mean, how many times have you heard that? Well, couldn't a God who created the universe keep children from starving? Couldn't He have prevented that accident from happening? I mean, if He can put the stars in place. That's exactly what they're saying here. They're questioning the ability of God and the goodness of God in this situation. Well, then we see the second emotion. Verse 38. Jesus once more deeply moved. There you see that word again, except this time it's different. He came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, and he said, Take away the stone. And that word there, once more deeply moved, the word there that is used is not weeping. The word that is used there is much closer to anger. In fact, the word that this comes from, one of the pictures that is given of this world is like a stallion, if you can picture this. A stallion who's clawing his hoofs and his nostrils are flaring as he's preparing to attack. That's the picture that we get of Jesus. We see here, we see here that Jesus is determined. And that He says, take away the stone. And Mary said, Lord, it's going to smell. He says, take away the stone. And so Jesus here is saying, didn't I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God now, take away the stone. Verse 42 and 43. I knew that you, and he says this to the Father, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he would said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It was Augustine that said if the reason he said Lazarus come out and not just come out was because had he said come out, he would have emptied the cemetery. (laughs) So, Lazarus here, four days after he has died, is brought back to life. Notice the response, verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him powerful powerful moment but there's always the other side some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done and then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin and made future plans to see how they could exterminate this person who was raising people from the dead well there are many points that we can bring out here I'm going to mention just a few of them Number one is we see the compassion of God for suffering people. Uh, Don't miss this point. John makes this point very clear. Compassion of God. In our fallen, broken world, Jesus is weeping. Jesus is weeping. And even though He knows... Even in your life, even though he knows in a short time it 's going to all be better, he still weeps that 's the takeaway from Jesus standing there weeping, knowing full well what was going to happen but he's just he 's looking at the pain of these people he realizes the the, the fallenness of this world and, and what people endure, what you endure, what I endure, and Jesus weeps for us Jesus has this compassion for us. And and the amazing thing about the compassion of Christ is not that He comes to take away our suffering, but that He comes to experience it with us. That whatever you're going through, that Jesus Christ is walking through that experience with you. Powerful, powerful truth. The second thing we see is the anger of God towards our enemy of death. Death is not just your enemy and my enemy, it is God's enemy. Jesus knows that things are not as they should be. And He sees this scene of everyone mourning and He he understands the devastation of death. And so He moves in to take on that enemy. It's an enemy we all face. You know, we can all eat all our vitamins, but we'll still end up in a box or an urn. All of us. I, I remember my first experience with this enemy of death. I was, in, I was in sixth grade. I don't remember what the pastor said at the funeral. I, it's all a blur to me. I, I just remember two things. I remember exactly where I was standing in the house exactly where I was standing in my, I was standing right by the bedroom door with my back to the downstairs in the kitchen. My dad walked in the front door and he said, John was on the tractor with his dad today and he fell off and the back wheel ran over him and he died. And I remember like everything in my gut I just remember everything like moving up into my throat. And it was the most horrific feeling. Some of you know what that's like. You know, it's one of those shocking moments where all of a sudden, just like that, someone's gone. And I was a sixth grade boy. And I, I still remember that. I remember walking through the cemetery, and this is the other thing I remember, with five of my classmates. And, carrying the casket of John Anderson, our friend, and I realized what an incredible enemy death is. It's the greatest enemy that we face. I remember those calls at the hospital where they call and say, I think you need to come up here. I hated those calls. I think you need to come up here. Well, Jesus Christ comes and we see, we see the anger and, and we see the determination that Jesus has here to take on this enemy of death. And the cross is all about the culmination of Jesus taking on the enemy of death which we will celebrate next Sunday that Jesus conquers the reality of death. Powerful, powerful truth. Here's the third one. The third takeaway is this. Jesus is never late. Jesus is never late. Now, for us, He's always late. Right? God, you know, look what time, I mean, I've been waiting like three days here, or three months, or three years. God's always late, but He's never late. He was late on this scene. You know, that's exactly what Mary Martha said, Lord, if you'd only been here earlier, if you hadn't been, you're too late. She said, I'm not too late. I'm never late. I am never late. God is always working out things for His glory and things for our good. He, he loves us, but sometimes He waits because He has other purposes in our lives. He's, he's doing other things. And so maybe that's something you need to write down somewhere that god is never late you may not understand why he's delaying but you can be assured that he has a reason and then finally and and this is the primary point of the text the primary point of the text is that to believe is to have life to believe is to have life. John Ortberg tells a a rather humorous story but it it really makes the point he talks about this massive wedding of a a mother of the bride and an eighteen piece brass wind ensemble twenty-four bridesmaids and groomsmen flower petal throwers, ring bearers uh, he writes in the article on the scale usually seen only during the military invasion of a sizable country. It was, it was one of these weddings. He writes, Ah, the bride, she'd been dressed for hours if not days. No adrenaline was left in her body, left alone with her father in the reception hall of the church, while the march of the maidens went on and on and on. She walked the aisles laden with gourmet goodies and absentmindedly sampled from the pink little green mints, Then she picked two silver bowls of mixed nuts and the pecans, followed by a cheese ball or two, some olives, a handful of glazed almonds, a little sausage, a couple of shrimps, blanket and bacon, a cracker piled with liver plate, and to wash it down, a glass of pink champagne. Her father gave it to her to calm her nerves. What she noticed as she stood in the doorway was not her dress but her face, white. For what was coming down the aisle was a living grenade with the pin pulled out and the bride threw up just as she walked by her mother. And I mean threw up. There's not just a nice word for it. I mean she hosed the whole front of the chancel, <laughs> hitting two bridesmaids, the groom, a ring bear, and in this case, as John Ortberg tells the story himself, only two people were seen smiling. One was the mother of the groom, and the other was the father of the bride. And so they explained how you know, they, the whole thing was shut down. They went into the fellowship hall, and they did a simple little wedding. And at the end of the day, and, and this is a point I want you to hear, at the end of the day, at the end of the story, it says, you know, the only thing that really mattered is that the bride got the groom. And that story is sometimes really a lot like our lives. Um, you know we have it all planned out. the whole thing. We've got it all scripted, and, and then it, it goes all wrong. And what I want to tell you, and what I want to remind us is, is that what's important is that it, in the end of the story, the bride gets the groom, and the groom gets the bride. That's what matters. And one day, when you stand before God, You know, there are a lot of things important to us, and there are a lot of things that are important, but it won't matter if your marriage survived or not. It won't matter if you got over that illness or not. It it won't matter. A lot of things won't matter. The only thing that will matter on that day is if the bride gets the groom, if if you get Christ. And what John is saying here, what John is saying here, is I have included this story for a, a very important purpose. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, and this is why the story's there. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. that you might have life in His name. Jesus said, I came that you might have life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in the whole story, the, the, the climax of the story is really not Lazarus coming out of the tomb. That's not the most important piece in the story. The important piece of the story is when Jesus steps up to Mary and Martha and you and me and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? That's the question. Do you believe this? Because our answer to that question, in the end, is the only answer that matters. Father, we thank you this morning for this story there are lots of things we learn from this story. Lots of things we see. We see, we see your compassion. You, we see your desire to <clears throat> defeat death. Lord, we, we see that even though we think you're late, you're never late. You've got other purposes that we don't see. And Lord, most of all, we, we read in this story, we hear from John himself, That all of these miracles and and everything that is included, all of these stories are meant to convince us that Jesus is the Christ and that He has power to grant life in His name. And so Lord, I I just pray today that for those that are in Christ here that, that we would just celebrate that marvelous truth. That though everything goes wrong in the wedding of our life, Lord, in the end, To be united with you is all that matters. Father, I also pray for anyone here who does not have this life, who has not answered the question, do you believe that I am the Christ? Father, I pray today that you would open the hearts of anyone who has not prayed that prayer and made that proclamation, that they would say as as Martha said, what I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God by believing that we would have life in your name. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. Lord, we pray now as we just reflect for these few moments as we receive this offering, just, Lord, bless it. And again, bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen.